find the life you didn't think was possible with the Jesus you never knew. Together, let's slow down a little and pay better attention to the most significant person in history. Welcome to the podcast, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, with your host, Rick Lawrence, and brought to you by Lifetree. Visit us at JesusCenteredLife.com. Hi, listeners. This is Season 3, Episode 16, brought to you by Lifetree at PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. Or the fast way of saying that is PainRidiculousAttentionToJesus.com. That's that's the sort of speed you hear at the end of every drug commercial or every real estate commercial or that sort of thing. My name is Rick. I'm author of The Jesus-Centered Life. The soon-to-be-released book, Spiritual Grit, is coming out in just a week, and editor of The Jesus-Centered Bible. Today, we're closing out our series of episodes that focus on the heresies about Jesus that we commonly embrace. So, love the word heresy because it sounds so ominous. And what we're exploring, really, are the sort of the common myths, things that we sort of blindly believe about Jesus or about the Christian life that don't have a whole lot of basis in truth, actually. We've just—they're almost like the urban myths of the Christian world and things about Jesus that we we assume are true, but on closer examination, they're not really true. And this includes things that we say almost as truisms in the Church. So one of those things that we've already explored in a previous episode with Steph Hilbury was— God will never give you anything that's too much for you. Um, so we explored that, the, the roots of where that came from, that common phrase, and kind of deconstructed it and then reconstructed the truth out of that. And this, this episode is going to be something similar to that. It's, uh, we're going to focus on a common sort of pick-me-up phrase that people use in the Church that I am positive that if you've ever stuck with the Church for more than a month or hung out with Christian people ever, you have heard this uh, phrase used as a sort of a way to tie up a bow on a difficult time in your life or give you hope and encouragement when you're discouraged. And the phrase is, all things work together for good. You ever had anybody say that? You know, all things work together for good. And it's this sort of uh, unhinged promise that whatever's happening in your life right now that you're discouraged about, that somehow, some way, that's all going to end up into a good thing, not a bad thing. You just need to keep pressing forward. And of course, that phrase is buried in the middle of something Paul says in Romans 8. And we often only quote the first part of this that Paul says, and not the last part. So here's, here's where this little phrase comes from. It's in Romans 8, 28, and here's exactly what Paul says. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. So the first part of that sort of really resonates with us emotionally. We know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God, is the second part that we often leave out. And the third part that we almost always leave out is, and are called according to his purpose for them. So we just take the first segment of those three segments, and that's what we repeat. And it's kind of like a, almost like a Harry Potter incantation. 
you know, oh, well, of course, uh, all things do work together for good. It's almost like we're saying the universe makes everything bad that you're experiencing right now eventually work for good as long as you have your heart in the right place, that kind of thing. That's how we throw it out. So I thought we'd start off by first examining the greater context in which Paul said this, and then we're going to dive back into some common versions of this myth that we hear about or experience in our everyday life. So the greater context, again, it's in Romans 8, and I just took a little bit of what Paul wrote about before he wrote those words, and a little bit after just so we can get a sense of, well, why was he saying this, and what was the context around it? So here, so here, let me read you um, what Paul said, Romans 8. We're going to go from verse 23 through verse 30 to give you some context on either side of this. So here's what he says. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory— For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We, too, wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. And the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. For example, we don't know what God wants us to pray for, but the Holy Spirit prays for us with groanings that can't be expressed in words. And the Father who knows all hearts knows what the Spirit is saying, for the Spirit pleads for us believers in harmony with God's own will. And here it comes. And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And having chosen them, he called them to come to him. And having called them, he gave them right standing with himself. And having given them right standing, he gave them his glory. So here we have this this statement about God causing everything to work together for the good, embedded in this little section where Paul is talking about our dependence on the Spirit, and that the Spirit is helping us. The Spirit helps us to understand how to be in harmony with God's will. It's all in the context of how our life in dependence on the Spirit helps us, even when we're in the midst of hard circumstances, helps us to find the good in all of those hard circumstances. So it's just an interesting section that Paul is speaking about here, but typical for us as Christian people, we've kind of found a little phrase in there that we've lifted out and used, kind of divorced from from its surroundings. So we'll, we'll come back to this again, but I thought it would be good for us to just explore some common versions of this sort of myth, all things work together for good, in everyday life. So a couple of stories. My, my wife, Bev, has uh, a lung disease— and for the last 12 years or so, she has been having some experimental therapy that's called IVIG therapy. It's, it's intravenous immunoglobulin therapy. That's why we use IVIG, because I can't hardly say what those letters stand for. But it's every three weeks, she's hooked up to an IV, and she has immunoglobulin put into her body, and that has 
it, it's healthy for her body for this for this procedure to to happen. It's not taking away. It doesn't have bad side effects, is what I'm saying. And it has stopped the progression of her disease. And, and it's been a remarkable and radical thing that's happened. Well, as part of this journey, um, for a long season of time, Bev had these infusions done for her at, a, at home with a nurse who would come to our home and spend about three or four hours in our home while this procedure was going on. And it was a lot more comfortable, you know, a lot more dignified, and a lot more just a positive experience for this to happen in our home. Well, the home nurse that Bev had for six or seven years uh, became very close to us. Uh, she was in our home every three weeks for three or four hours. We got to know her really well. She got to know us. Our kids started to see her as kind of like an aunt. She was just an amazing, remarkable woman who had overcome a lot in her own life and herself had a compromised immune system. So there was a lot that she she was kind of like an older sister to Bev in a way. And there was one thing, though, about this nurse, whose name is Kathy, who, uh, when she said it, I always just sort of tensed up a little bit, because one of the things that she would say over and over again is, is something like, everything will work out the way it's supposed to. Everything will work out the way it's supposed to. So when Bev might share with her something that she was anxious about, or troubled about, or thinking about in the future that she was going to have to face— Kathy would always all, often look at her with kind of a, a knowing smile and maybe reach out and touch her and say, Bev, everything's going to work out the way it's supposed to. And the reason I tensed up with this is that it sounds very um, comforting and it sounds almost wise, but when you slow down and pay attention to the promise behind that, it's she's essentially saying, just trust the universe that everything's going to work out okay that somehow in the algorithm of the universe, the thing that, that's about to happen to you will actually turn out to be a good thing. It'll all turn out the way it's supposed to. There's also a kind of a hint of fatalism in this statement, that it's all going to turn out the way it's supposed to, that it's all going to turn out for the good. The, the fatalism comes in that it's almost like in the universe, something's already been decided that even though it looks chaotic and terrible right now, it's all going to work out. It's, uh, fatalism is actually a central belief in Islam. My friend Carl Medeiros, um, who, by the way, has just, uh, has just come out this week with a new book called 42 Seconds, which is about the average length of time of an encounter that Jesus had with someone in Scripture. He had a person kind of study these encounters and figure out about how long would that encounter have taken— and they, they came up with this number, this average of 42 seconds. So Carl has written a book called 42 Seconds that's all about how to engage people in a more proactive and intentional way in your life, because Jesus only had 42 seconds with these encounters, but he changed people's lives in those 42 seconds. So, so um, we're going to actually have Carl on the podcast um, in May sometime. Uh, I already have an idea of what I'd like for him to talk about, so we'll have him on the podcast in May. But Carl wrote a book called Muslims, Christians, and Jesus, and he's been a lifelong missionary in the Muslim world. Um, he lived in Beirut for a dozen years, and he had uh, he has a real love for the Muslim people. And in his book, Muslims, Christians, and Jesus, he talks about some of the foundational beliefs of Islam that you have to deal with when you're going to be in close relationship with Muslims. And one of those factors 
is fatalism. And he uses a story to describe what fatalism is. He, he talks about how he met this pilot of a fighter jet who was a non-Muslim, but the, the, his co-pilot in the fighter jet was a Muslim. And they had this experience once when they were in a training exercise. There, something went wrong with their jet, and suddenly the jet was sort of plummeting toward the earth, and the non-Muslim pilot was screaming into his intercom, we got to figure out what's wrong with the jet. We got to we got to get this corrected. And his co-pilot who was a Muslim took his hands off the wheel and said back through the intercom, whatever uh, whatever happens is all as well. Meaning, I'm not going to do anything right now to fix the the jet slamming into the ground because if we slam into the ground it must have been all as well. So Obviously, the man is telling Carl his story, so he figured out what was wrong with the jet before they hit the ground. But Carl used that story to say that is a very common way of thinking, that if something happens, it must have been Allah's will in the first place, so that it's kind of a fatalistic way of thinking. It's akin, I think, to saying just trust that everything's going to turn out the way it's supposed to, or trust the universe, that it's all going to work together for good— there's a kind of an idea that there's an existing algorithm <laughs> that is going to turn everything to the good in the end. So when we say all things work together for good, it's kind of a happier spin on fatalism. <laughs> it's kind of a positive spin on fatalism that, yeah, it's all going to work out, but it will only work out for the good. That's how things work. They always work out for the good. It's In, in fact, it's kind of a, a, a false promise the the slower you approach this and think about what we're really saying, it's a false promise. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of the Stockdale paradox. It's something I've uh, done a lot of exploration into, and I've written about in the Jesus centered life. There's a whole chapter in the Jesus centered life on the Stockdale paradox. And here's how it goes: There's a the uh, Admiral Jim Stockdale was a person who was imprisoned the longest during the Vietnam War, the highest-ranking officer imprisoned the longest in, in uh, the Vietnam War. He was imprisoned in what uh, was, was snidely referred to as the Hanoi Hilton, and he was part of the underground resistance at, when he was a prisoner, and because of that, he was tortured and put in isolation for most of the time that he was in the Hanoi Hilton. He was there for eight years. And he was when he was finally released, because he had been tortured so often and had been confined to a cell where he could not even stand up for so long, he couldn't he had to relearn how to walk. But he was finally released. And after he was released, he had started to think through what allowed him to survive when a lot of other people didn't. And he was at a social gathering when he met Jim Collins, the author of Good to Great. One of the I think is the best-selling business book of all time, and when he met Jim Collins, Collins was fascinated with Jim Stockdale's story. So Collins asked him the the question that Stockdale had been mulling for a while: Why do you think that you survived when so many others didn't? And Stockdale said, "Well, the key to surviving is to not be an optimist. <laughs> the optimists are the ones who didn't make it." and and Jim Collins said, what do you mean by optimist? And Stockdale said, well, an optimist is somebody who thought, well, we're going to be for sure released by Christmas, or we'll for sure be released by Easter, and then it never happened. And then they just lost heart, and then they gave up. 
And and Stockdale said, I had hope, but I wasn't an optimist. Stockdale said, you have to embrace the brutal reality of your current situation without letting go of the transcendent hope that you're hanging on to. You have to live in the tension between these two things, the brutal reality and the hope. If you overinvest one way or another, it's not going to work out for you. So you have to call things what they are in all of their brutal reality without letting that undermine your ultimate hope that you're going to make it. Well, Jim Collins heard him say this and loved what he said so much that he put it in his book, Good to Great, and called it the Stockdale Paradox, and said this was really the key for leadership and business, is good leaders acknowledge the brutal reality while persevering in their transcendent hope. So the reason why the Stockdale Paradox comes up for me with this all things work together for good is that that phrase doesn't really allow for um, brutal reality or transcendent hope. It's just simple optimism. It's sort of trusting the void that everything's going to work together for good, because, of course, we forget the other two segments of what Paul said there, which are, all things do work together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to God's purpose for them. Those two stipulations, because that's what they are, they're stipulations. So the, the Stockdale Paradox fits all of what Paul said, because embedded in what Paul is saying here is some brutal reality. Those two stipulations are some brutal reality. Yes, all things do work together for good for those who love God and for those who are called according to his purpose. Does that mean that things don't all work together for good for those who don't love God and are not called according to his purpose? Well, you could say that's the opposite of what Paul is saying, and that there's no what really what that means then is that there's no universal algorithm out there that is working all things together for good, no matter who you are or what you're doing. That's the the operative point there. So now let's explore a little bit about how Jesus lived out all things working together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose for him. What does that actually look like? How do we see that lived out with Jesus? All right, let's first go to John chapter 9, and we're going to take a look at a story that we've looked at before, but we're going to look at it through a different filter this time. So we're going to look at it through this filter, the, the, the Paul filter, that God works out all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose for them. Let's think about that in terms of this encounter Jesus has with a man born blind. So here, I'll just read you the story, and then we'll dive back into it. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who'd been blind from birth. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Hmm. Now that's an interesting question. Let's just stop right there. Uh, basically, the disciples are saying, the fact that this man is going through this terrible hardship, that he was born blind, like he didn't do, he didn't gouge his eyes or something, he was just born this way, there must be a cause and effect here. So either that this man had sinned, and this is the consequences of his sin, or his parents must have sinned, and it's the consequence. So there must be a cause-effect here. It is kind of a fatalistic belief that if you sin, you get consequences, and that the reverse is true also. If I'm not blind, I must be a pretty good person. 
That's the way the universe works. Or if I'm still married and not divorced, it must be because I'm a pretty good person. The people are who, whose marriages haven't lasted, well, they must have done something. That's, that's kind of the framework that disciples are thinking of. And here's Jesus' response to his disciples. He says, It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. So Jesus is saying, you know what? Basically, everyone sins. If if blindness was the result of sin, we'd all you'd all be blind. He's saying, no, no, that, that has nothing to do with it. That really this man is broken by the the fact that he's born into a broken world and things are not as they should be. And what he's saying is this man's blindness exists so that the power of God can be lived out in his life. So here Jesus, if we, if we go back to the Paul filter of why all things work together for good, this idea that the stipulations are for those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them, what he's really describing here is an umbrella under which all things work together for good. So when you love God and you are called according to his purpose for him, what he's saying is there's nothing that can happen in your life that won't ultimately contribute to the good underneath that umbrella. There's nothing that can happen to you that God won't use for good underneath that umbrella. And he's, if you take the converse, you can say, and if you hate God— and, ha- and don't care at all about the purpose you're called to under him. It's not necessarily true that the hard things that you experience are going to be used for good in your life. So this, this umbrella is set up, and if you think about this story, the, uh, this encounter Jesus has with his disciples, he's trying to say that the um, he, he's suggesting the umbrella. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. He's suggesting that that the the real thing to to pay attention to here is the power God has to heal and restore people, to bring life back to them, to heal them. That's the the real focus. So let's take another another story, the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who is raised from the dead. So in this story that we've also uh, focused on in previous episodes, Lazarus gets sick. Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha and Lazarus are Jesus's closest friends from all that we can gather from Scripture. Besides the disciples, these three are his closest friends, the people he loves to hang out with, and he's quite close to Lazarus, and he gets word from Mary and Martha that Lazarus is ill, and that Jesus needs to come quickly because Lazarus is really sick, and if Jesus doesn't come soon, Lazarus is going to die. And uh, in the story, Jesus purposefully delays going to see Lazarus, and he lets his disciples know that they're not going to go see Lazarus yet. He delays his trip by a couple of days, and by the time he gets there, of course, Lazarus has already passed away, and he's already in a tomb, and he's been dead for three days. So, of course, Mary and Martha are beside themselves with grief, and particularly Mary is furious with Jesus for delaying they basically say, if you had come sooner, of course, Lazarus would still be alive. And 
there's this tremendous grief and brokenness that's that's happened because they knew that something could have saved their brother, but for some reason Jesus delayed his journey, and now their brother's dead forever. And Jesus is actually quite moved by the grief of everyone around Lazarus, but it's reminiscent of his explanation to the disciples who asked about whether the blind man's sin or his parents' sin were the result of his were the were the uh, were the source of his blindness. Jesus says, and 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 in this story models that really Lazarus's death is not about something actually that he did wrong. He has set up this situation so that people will see the power of God and what God can do, that he is Lord over even death. And if you think about it this way, who is he going to entrust to experience this level of grief, this level of of chaos and uncertainty and anger and frustration? Well, he entrusted it to his best friends. I think this is part of the reason why Jesus is weeping as he listens to them, because he's entrusted a huge thing with his friends, which is to let one of his best friends die, so that everyone in the world will know that he has power over even death. And so, of course, he calls out to Lazarus in the tomb, and Lazarus comes walking out, and they unwrap him, and Lazarus goes on to live for many years after this. And it says in the in the story that that the word of this happening spread to all of the known world. Of course it would when you raise somebody from the dead. So in in this story, how are all things working together for good? In the, in the moment, Mary and Martha's experience of life is that nothing's good, and the one person who could have helped them didn't help them, and it looks like he didn't do it on purpose. There's really nothing good that you can find underneath that umbrella. But Jesus is suggesting the real umbrella is that I am fiercely passionate about my people and about those I love, and I have power over even death. Death is not a big deal to me, because wherever I am, there is life. So Jesus is trying to communicate here that the real truth, all things do work together for good for those who are in a love relationship with me, and also are called according to my purpose, which is true in every aspect of this story. And then all things do work together for good. It doesn't mean that Mary and Martha aren't scarred from this experience, don't have lasting grief from this experience, don't have to recover in their relationship with Jesus from this experience. But what it results from it, the fruit of it, is deeply good, that the whole world knows now through this experience that Jesus has power over death, and Lazarus has intimate knowledge of the power of Jesus over death. Imagine the conversations that that guy had the rest of his life, listening to what happened to people during the three days he was in the tomb, hearing their stories of grief and anger and frustration toward Jesus, uh, really coming to grips with, I was actually dead for three days and Jesus raised me up, what would that do to the way you lived your life? What would that do to your experience of who Jesus is and what he could do? That, that guy had a level of 
I think, of trust and belief in Jesus that few others would have, because few others had ever been dead for three days and raised by Jesus. So the good that comes out of this, the good fruit that comes out of this, is extraordinary and widespread. Okay, let's look at another one. This one's from Acts chapter 9, and this is the story of Saul, who later became Paul, getting knocked off his donkey. So um, let's, let's just read this little story, and again, think about this overarching thing that Paul has said, that all things work together for good. So, meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. And as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell down to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? And the voice replied, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. (laughs) Now get up and go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. Well, the men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice but saw no one. So Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias, and the Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling, Ananias! Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, Go over to the straight street, to the house of Judas, and when you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. And it's like, Jesus is saying to Ananias, this man named Saul from Tarsus, as if Ananias didn't know who Saul from Tarsus was, when Saul from Tarsus was one of the chief persecutors of people just like him. So I think that's just funny that Jesus is saying, you know, go to this man, his name is, um, you know, he's from Tarsus, and he's named Saul. Um, he's that guy. He's the head of the mafia. <laughs> so Jesus says to Ananias, he's praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he's authorized by the leading priests to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. The Lord said, Go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings, as well as to the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight and then he got up and was baptized. <laughs> Might as well do it right away. And afterward, he ate some food and regained his strength. So this is another one of those stories that if you think about from Saul's point of view. So is it, is, are all things going to work together for good? Well, right now, I've seen a flash of lightning. I've heard a voice from the heavens identify himself as Jesus, who I'm persecuting his followers, and now it turns out I can't see. And I have no guarantee that I'll ever see again. And now I'm in the care of the people that were traveling with me in Damascus, and I don't know what to do. I, I, every, every aspect of my power, authority, and strength has been stripped from me now because Jesus knocked me off my donkey. And then Ananias, think about this from his perspective, 
He's just been asked to do the worst thing you can possibly imagine, to just go into the mafia boss's home and help him. (laughs) The same person who's been killing and torturing your friends, you're being asked to go see that guy and be the means to which that man finds healing. So Ananias has to be wondering, oh my gosh, what, what, why am I being asked to do this? So things don't look good for him either. And in the end, I, I think this is interesting what, what Jesus says to Ananias. He says, I want you to go because Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and the kings as well as the people of Israel. Talk about being called according to his purpose. Underneath this umbrella of loving God and being called according to his purpose, this is Jesus does what I, what I would call the Tony Soprano method of evangelism. He injects a great deal of hardship into Saul's life to get his attention. And when he has Saul's attention, somehow Saul's response in the end, uh, because uh, Jesus tells Ananias, Saul is praying to me right now. So in the context of this tremendous hardship he's facing, Saul's heart changes, and he goes from wanting to persecute the followers of Jesus to actually drawing near to Jesus. He's praying to him now. He's maybe negotiating with him. And as soon as he is, as his blindness is healed, he gets up, and before he even eats, before he does anything, he wants to be baptized, which is a public proclamation of his commitment his heart commitment to Jesus. So underneath this umbrella of now his love for Jesus and his calling, which is his purpose to bring the message of Jesus to all of the Gentiles and all of the kings and all of the people of Israel in the world, all things do work together for good. They're being crafted towards a, a good ending. Okay, well, let's let's look at one last uh, one last story, and then I'll kind of wrap up with some some thoughts about how this, what this means for us on an everyday basis. So the last one is from Matthew chapter 8, and this is the story of the disciples on a boat in a storm. So this is a short story, so let me just read this. It's Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And then Jesus got into the boat and started across the lake with his disciples. Suddenly a fierce storm struck the lake with waves breaking into the boat, but Jesus was sleeping. The disciples went in and woke him up, shouting, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. Jesus responded, Why are you afraid? You have so little faith. And then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and suddenly there was a great calm. And the disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked. Even the winds and the waves obey him. So here we have these disciples, some of them fishermen, who are well used to the water and storms on the water, and the storm was so bad that the waves are breaking over the top of the gunwales into the boat, and they were afraid for their lives. They thought for sure they were going to drown. Meanwhile, Jesus is sleeping in the back of the boat. And so, again, this is similar to this, the story of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who plead with Jesus to come help them when Lazarus is dying. The disciples are like, man, Jesus, what are you doing sleeping? <laughs> Don't you care that, that we're going to drown? And Jesus wakes up, and he says, why are you afraid? You have so little faith. And he just kind of almost casually gets up, rebukes the wind and the waves, and suddenly there's a great calm. And the disciples are looking at him going, oh my gosh, who is this man? They don't quite get it yet. 
Again, what Jesus is trying to plant in them is the truth about who he is. He's not just a prophet. He's not just a a great rabbi. He exponentially transcends those descriptions. They ask, who is this man? Even the winds and the waves obey him. So Jesus is planting something that they will never forget in their experience of him, that he's greater and bigger than they ever imagined. But if you, if you think about the, the context that they're in, they literally think they're about to die. So how are all things going to work together for good when waves are crashing over the sides of the boat and Jesus doesn't seem to care because he's just sleeping in the back? Again, Jesus is trying to make a point about who he is, and what results from this encounter is worship. These, these men are now in awe of who he is and what he's capable of, and also Jesus' fierce advocacy on their behalf, to the extent that he'll simply stop the wind and the waves uh, about to sink their boat uh, because of his fierce advocacy. So I've mentioned before this umbrella of, yes, God causes everything to work together for the good of those who really love him and are called according to his purpose for them. So I want to kind of close this off by focusing on the word causes. When you are in, under the umbrella of your love for God, and you are called, meaning you you have a purpose um, in your relationship with him, and you're doing your best to live it out, the promise here that Paul is saying is that God will cause everything that happens in your life to work together for good. So the question is, what is good underneath that umbrella? It certainly doesn't mean from our own experience that all our circumstances will turn out good, because that's just not true. It's not true that no matter what, like like my wife's nurse, Kathy, uh, tried to intimate, it's not true that everything's just going to work out the way it's supposed to, with the inference that all of these circumstances will turn out good. We know from experience that circumstances don't always turn out good. So the good that Jesus is suggesting, that God will cause all of these things to work together for good, is the good of the umbrella, which is that this deepening love that we have for Jesus will get deeper, that Jesus will use no matter what happens in our life, he will leverage those things to draw us into a deeper relationship with him, that we will taste who is good rather than experience what is good all the time. Let me say that again. His purpose is to help us to taste who is good rather than to always turn circumstances into what is good. So remember when the rich young ruler first approached Jesus and asked him what else he had to do to gain eternal life, because he'd already done quite a bit already, but the way he addressed Jesus was good teacher. And Jesus first paused and said, who are you calling good? Don't you know only God is good? He was first planting this fundamental truth that the only standard for good in the universe is God himself. And here, this phrase that Paul uses God will cause everything to work together for good. I think the way to to interpret this is that underneath this, no matter what happens to you, he will draw you to good. And the good, really, in the end, is Jesus.
Jesus is the one who makes everything good, whether our circumstances are good or not. So the, the great promise we have over our life is not really tied to our circumstances, though sometimes our circumstances do get better underneath uh, our relationship with Jesus. But if they don't, one thing that we can be sure of is that he's taking the, the good and the ill, and he will leverage it to, to create a greater intimacy in our life with him. So in your everyday life, the way I think about this in my everyday life is I go through as many circumstantial, difficult things as you do, disappointments, failures, embarrassments, all kinds of things, and I also experience great things, wonderful things, uh, beautiful things. Underneath the umbrella of my love for Jesus, no matter whether they're a hard experience or a beautiful experience, they have the capacity to draw me closer to Him. If it's a hardship, if it's a challenge, if it's a great discouragement or failure, I'm drawn to Him through a desperate need for His rescue, for his desperate, my desperate need for His mercy and His kindness and His tenderness. I'm drawn into His heart that way. And if I experience good things underneath the umbrella of my love for Him, they remind me of His beauty, His graciousness, His attention to detail in my life, the little acts of kindness that He plants in my life like little flowers. I, those things also draw me into the depths of His heart. So either way, these things draw me to Him. So sometimes people will ask me, um, like just they just did the other day, I saw an old friend who was in town to visit me, and he asked me, how are things going? What I told him was a mix of things that are really hard and things that are really great, because that's what life is like. But underneath the hard and the great, both of those things were drawing me into a deeper intimacy and a deeper taste of the goodness of Jesus, no matter which way they went. So the, the way to skewer this myth is to not simply believe that the universe takes every hard circumstance, and if you're a good person and you, and you love God, it takes every hard circumstance, and the universe makes it all turn out good. That's a false promise, and it's, and it's not even consistent with what we know is true about the Stockdale Paradox, because Jesus lived in the Stockdale Paradox. He lived acknowledging brutal reality while never letting go of a transcendent hope. So we know that this the way that we use this phrase, all things work together for good, does, does not reflect the truth about how Jesus uh, works in our life. The truth is, all things do work together for good, whether they're circumstantially great or circumstantially hard, when our real end game is intimacy with Jesus. He will bring us to this place where we drink deeply from the well of his goodness. And what happens then is that when you've drunk deeply from the well of his goodness, it, it, you won't be telling your, your friend who ha you haven't seen for a long time that those hard things aren't really hard things in your life, but you'll be telling them that the overshadowing experience you have of the goodness of Jesus makes those hard things not the focal point of your life. <laughs> that They're hard, yes, but the fact that you're tasting in a deeper way the love of Jesus in the midst of them is really your end game. And your focus doesn't have to be on your circumstances then. It's always moving toward the greater good, which is a deeper taste of him. Well, there you have it, gang. Uh, that's, a, that's a shot at our last 
heresies about Jesus we commonly embrace. And next week, uh, Steph Hilbury and I will be on the episode together, and uh, the next week will be the week that Spiritual Grit is releasing. So Steph and I will be kicking off a special series of episodes that focus on the message of Spiritual Grit, and we'll be kicking them off together next week. So it's an exciting week next week. Uh, We'll be back for that. And remember, you can find out details about what was in today's podcast if you go to our Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com page, just find our podcast section, and you're looking for Season 3, Episode 16, you'll see links there to things I've talked about here. And don't forget, uh, it's still not too late, even though it's a week before the release of the book, if you would like to be a part of the launch team for Spiritual Grit, you will find a link for that on that same page, Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com. You'll find a link there that you can get get on there and get an electronic copy of the book before it's released, so that uh, we're, we're hoping that all—and uh, we're asking all those who are involved in the launch team to read it in advance so that they're ready the week of the launch to write a review on Amazon and even buy a copy so that they're, they're a qualified buyer on Amazon. So—and you'll find if you sign up for that launch team that we've given away some special surprises, and, and uh, it's a really thriving community of about 400 people— that are on there now, and it's it's a it's a fantastic little community that is formed around launching the book. So there's a lot of uh, special surprises for you if you if you sign up. So head on over there if that's something that interests you. Again, this is paying ridiculous attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from LifeTree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again next time.